Hi, and welcome to Faculty Focus, a podcast supporting the clinical education community in Leicester. We bring you Educator CPD, showcase new initiatives, and shine a light on some of the faculty behind it all. Well, hello and welcome to this episode of the Faculty Focus podcast. Today, we're at the Education Showcase Day at the University Hospitals of Leicester, and um, I've got the Director of Medical Education, Professor Mark McCarthy, with me. Um, so, hello, welcome. Uh, this is the third hello. third education day that we've had here, isn't it? Is it that, is, yes. Yeah. Looks like um, it's taken quite a bit of work to organise a quite packed programme. Yes, I mean, uh, I've got to say thank you to the team, really, particularly Joanne, Claire and, um, and Kate Whitmore. You've done a lot of the organising. I'm really sort of helped put the programme together. But uh, most of the organising uh, is done by the team. And we've used this venue because obviously it's a joint link with the university. Mm. Um, and so as education, it's undergraduates and postgraduates. And we work closely with the University of Leicester. Um, and, and it's a very good venue. And it's, uh, it is, yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, it's, it's a sort of a warm, friendly environment, which is what we want, really. Yeah, and I think, I think it's important to hold it off. So, so for our listeners, we're at um, the University of Leicester's College Court, um, which I believe was used to be a residential it did. Um, sort of hall of residence yeah. for the students and yeah. now they've converted it into um, a bit of a conference center so yeah it's a great and i think it it's quite nice to get off-site isn't it because then it you're really out of that clinical hospital environment and you can sort of switch into a different yeah you can switch off turn your phones off yeah. and uh you know you're not distracted by the issues yeah that, that frequently that pop up yes yeah and of course um we've got um i know this morning been using um reese and max who've been helping with the it and they those looks like they've got some really interesting stuff lined up later on. Yeah. Um, so, as your what's what's the kind of aim when you're sort of thinking about putting these days together? What's the aim of bringing everyone together for these education showcase days? Well, I think you just said it there, bring people together. Really, I think that's very important, particularly you know over the last few years everything's been done remotely, and I think we've all missed being in the same room together. And then what you do miss is their networking at the breaks, you know, at coffee and lunch speaking to people that you don't necessarily see from time to time um so it's the networking side but also uh you know delivering information to people about what's happening in education because there is a lot happening and and you know the, the educators in the trust may not know that when they're yeah. on the shop floor um and so we've got quite a varied program both at undergraduate postgraduate level um and and there will be uh some updates from our fellows uh, we talk about what we're doing with technology and the improvements in that and with the facilities that we're, we're improving uh, but we're also uh, sort of looking at uh, having uh, quite some interactive forums yeah uh, with, with with the audience really to try and get some information out of them about what they want yeah yeah that's a great idea. and hopefully over the course of um, course of the day we'll manage to pull a few people in and um, and get them to talk about their specific yeah. areas great um just overall then as as the director of medical education what what's your take on the education environment at uhl currently i mean as you said there's a lot going on but do you have to sort of feel for how things are or areas that you need to i think it's very pressured really i mean the clinical particularly going into winter the clinical services are really pressured uh, every day you know there's excess number of patients in ed waiting for beds people on the backs of ambulances and, you know, it's not infrequently the consult SPA time has been taken down, which then has a knock-on effect on the sort of education of trainees, training days are going down. And so you've got this gap between November and sort of February, March, really, where I wouldn't say education takes a backseat, but it, it's the first to, you yeah. know, to suffer. Yes. Um, and I don't think anybody wants to do that, but it's, it's the pressure of the clinical workload. Yeah. Um, but overall, I think if you look at our GMC survey data, we're sort of sitting quite well amongst all the trusts in the East Midlands. Yeah. Uh, the overall satisfaction score showed that we had no red flags compared to some of the other trusts we have. Okay. Obviously, individual services have have issues, but yeah. overall, we were doing quite well. Excellent. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's, that's really is something positive. And yeah. Yeah. We've certainly been involved in looking at a few of those red flag areas. So. Yeah. Um, Good. Um, and, and I know that the um, education now features in the trust strategy. So is that is that something that we're revisiting within the department to up, update, refresh our education? Yeah, because uh, we, we, we set our 
previous strategy to the old trust values of the trust strategy, um, and now we need to align it to the new one. Within the new trust strategy, we sit with sort of research and education and innovation as, as important pillars, really. Right. Um, so what we're aiming to do is to align our strategy with the current strategy of the trust. And part of today is we'll have an open session where we're going to try and talk about that and get some views from our educators that's to really try and sort of steer us to what they want in our strategy. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that is really important, isn't it? You've got the, the shop floor educators who yeah. sort of feed into that into that strategy. That's great. Well, thank you very much for joining. I know you've got a very busy day and um, you've got a presentation to prepare for, but um, just before we go, it, it, like I said, it's a packed program. Is there anything in particular you're looking forward to, any session that you've seen that you thought might be quite interesting? Well, yes, we've got a, um, a retired police officer talking to how to negotiate, um, you know, with, with extreme terrorists, uh, right. many of which I haven't seen in the trust, but um, I think those <laughs> techniques can be useful sometimes, particularly dealing with uh, difficult conversations. Um, and obviously the updates from, you know, Secretary Care Dean and the sort of uh, the head of the medical school are quite important things, really, which will help shape us as to what we're doing in the future in UHR. Excellent. Great. Okay. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much once again. And uh, yeah, we'll let, hope to hear from some of those individuals you mentioned. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Righty. Okay. And um, hello there, everybody. Um, now I've managed to capture uh, someone from the medical school. I've got Professor Simon Gay with me now. Um, so you're the head of the uh, Leicester Medical School. And um, and you've come here. You're just here for the morning for this part of the conference. You're obviously a very busy man. <laughs> Yes, I'm, I'm, I've managed to, to put the morning aside because obviously UHL is a key partner in the education of our students. Um, I'm going I'm to slip away for the afternoon because I have to be at some other meetings, but I'm coming back later. Right. And um, so you've, you've recently just taken over as the head of the medical school. Professor um, Richard Holland was your predecessor. Um, how are you finding the role? Is, have you been in very long? Or? So I've got a long affiliation with Leicester, actually. I did my GP training in in Leicester back at the end of the 80s, early 90s, um, and then left the area for a couple of decades before coming back. Um, I actually came back to the East Midlands and worked at Nottingham Medical School for a few years. I came back to Leicester, uh, Leicester Medical School four years ago um, to take up the chair in medical education and, and primary care there. Um, and then I've, I've I've uh, taken up new roles within the school. Um, so most recently I was appointed as one of two uh, deputy heads of school, the other one being uh, Dr. Fiona Mile, something oh, yes. rheumatologist. Yeah. Yeah. And then when Richard Holland announced that he was moving to Exeter, I, I threw my hat in the ring and I was lucky enough to be appointed. Right. So I just started in role the 1st of July, so I'm still a bit wet behind the ears from right. the, the top job point of view. So not even six months, just yeah. 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 Um, Okay, and um, so I think I remember seeing things about Leicester Medical School. Um, we certainly see posters up and about and, and in the communications, but it seems to be a very popular place to come and study medicine. It seems to score pretty well in, in these rankings um, from both the student side and from research side. Is that kind of your experience of the students you've come into contact with and the faculty working at the university? So, so Leicester and Leicester... Shire has, has long had a strong pedigree in education and training. Even when I, I came to do my own training, um, it was a beacon within, within the region uh, of somewhere good to get, to get a good educational experience. And I think that's persisted clearly over the decades. Um, Leicester Medical School has, has gone from strength to strength in the last uh, seven or eight years, I think. And a, a, a lot of the credit for that goes to Richard Holland, but also for all the people who are involved with the medical school. And in my talk, uh, shortly after we we finish speaking, um, I'll be emphasizing how well it's doing currently and how much of that is in no small part down to people at UHL. Um, the students we get, um, I would say it, wouldn't I? But I think they're excellent. Um, the metrics from various angles, um, demonstrate that that's not just a personal opinion that's actually got a wide held belief but just a couple of years ago for example one in six applications to medicine within the uk were made to leicester oh, wow. and there are 
they're approaching their 40 medical schools. Um, so that's that's a testament all of its own. Yeah, fantastic. Yes, so certainly school leaders are, are hearing that message. Yeah. Um, so as you said, you've got a you've got a session a little bit later on um, discussing some of the issues around undergraduate training. Um, but just for our listeners, what are some of the challenges facing the medical school, perhaps locally and, and even nationally? So all of us uh, are in whatever sphere of healthcare uh, are living in a period of austerity, aren't we? Um, we're forever having to think about how we do more with with less funding and square that that circle. Um, the important things for me as head of the medical school are that we do that in collaboration and cooperation with the local education providers that support us. And the largest supporter we have uh, of our medical school in that regard is UHL. So a key, key relationship, not only to maintain, but actually to strengthen and, and nurture further. If we look at the national landscape, the country is struggling to retain doctors at the moment. We're producing good quality graduates, but they're finding the working environment within service provision to be very challenging. Um, and the, one of the government's responses to that is to try and increase the number of healthcare professionals we produce. Um, and obviously, as a medical school, we will engage with that as far as we can possibly go. It would be really good to see uh, the same level of focus paid to actually improving the working conditions for all concerned because whilst we can produce more graduates we still need to retain the ones we produce yeah. uh, otherwise all we're doing is increasing the number that are available to move to other countries yeah um, so that's an important issue for me that we must just keep reminding everyone uh, whilst we're genuinely invested in increasing the numbers we must also be genuinely invested in increasing the the conditions for those who do graduate. Yeah. When we come to look at increasing numbers, obviously the, the NHS long-term workforce plan has come out and that has a number of interesting uh, and stimulating uh, strategies within it. Um, some of them have been met with more positivity than others. Um, so for example, apprenticeship model training for healthcare professionals has generally been seen as quite positive has had a much less positive reaction within the medical school communities up and down the country uh, for the production of, of apprenticeship uh, doctors. Yeah, that's certainly something we've seen. Some, uh, you know, if, you, if you're connected into that social media world, you've certainly seen a lot of um, strong feelings on both sides. Yeah, it's uh, quite controversial. Yeah. Um, but, but alongside that, and in reality, probably much more likely to deliver the numbers of... of clinicians that we're looking for are the proposals to reduce the, the current five-year um, degree program for primary medical qualification to four years and the equivalent um, primary medical qualification with a foundation year from six years to five years. That, to me, uh, is something we need to explore very carefully, um, but we also need to make sure if, if we go down that route that we don't just succeed in burning out our uh, students before they qualify rather than during their qualified practice. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a huge amount to cram into five years. Absolutely. Uh, so yeah, definitely some <clears throat> careful planning there. Um, so um, with with all that in mind, then, is there any, any specific messages you want to? I know certainly one of the earlier talks we had Greg, Greg McMahon talking about how we can involve some of our UHL educators in a more formal role. He's talked about the clinical teacher role um, and um, some of the tariffs that comes with that. Is there any are there any other key messages you would want UHL educators to know about um, from the medical school? Or? So the first thing I'd say, and I, I said it briefly as a comment to uh, Greg and and Greg well, and Mark McCarthy's uh, presentations, is that the relationship we have as a medical school with UHL educators is a strong one success of the medical school is in no small part down to the contributions UHL educators make. So what's already ha happening, <coughs> excuse me, what's already going well, we really need to try and preserve, maintain and progress as much as possible. Um, but the pressures are going to increase. The need to put more students through is going to be there. And we can only do that through collaboration, cooperation, co-design, really. Um, we are 
it's a bit like when I came into medicine. That, that when I joined the NHS in the eighties, I felt like uh, the professionals were very much in it together. There's very strong team ethos. Yeah, and I think that at the moment we are contracted to different organisations, but the reality is, if we have the, the the healthcare fabric of society in the UK in our mind's eye, we are all in the same team, and we have to move this forward in a way that works for everyone. Great. Well, that's really good to hear. Well, uh, um, we'll sort of bring things to a close here, let you get some coffee. But uh, thank you very much for for joining us on the podcast, and um, yeah, I look forward to uh, to hearing a bit more of it in your talk later on. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure, and thank you very much for inviting me to speak with you. No problem. Great. Okay, um, so I have managed to grab the chair of the Doctors in Training Committee, um, Miss Sarah Jane Messeder, one of the vascular registrars here at UHL. Um, so, hello, welcome to the Education Showcase and also the podcast. Hi. Um, so, um, I um, got, I remember getting an email a little while ago, not that long ago actually. Um, telling me that you've taken over the chair role for the committee, the Doctors and Training Committee. Um, how, are you, how are you finding it? Yeah, it's good. Um, so I started in the role in February and it's been a really interesting journey because when I first started, I wasn't 100% sure about the structure of UHL or how things worked. I'd um, lived in Scotland, I'd moved down to not only a different NHS system, but also a completely different trust. And so what's been really nice is having conversations with managers and people in education and also trainees mm. and trying to think how best we can help trainees feel that they have their voices heard, but also how in return we can help those in education and management get the best out of their trainees. Yes, right. I mean, it's certainly one of those things that, um, you know, when the committee was set up, it's very much integrated into the wider management yeah. parts of the trust. So you yeah. feed into you know, um, whether it's the Guardian of Safe Working yeah. or Freedom Speaker, Medical Director, that sort of thing. So I think it does give you a really good uh, take on how things get done in our yeah. trust, doesn't it? Absolutely. Um, so um, it's it's called the Doctors in Training Committee, but um, one of the things I think has probably changed over the years mm. is that you don't just have Doctors in Training involved in it. Yeah. So you've got representation from sort of a wider group of people. Absolutely, right? absolutely. And I think that's quite key because we now work um, in a system where it's not just trainees, but we've got locally employed doctors, we've got trust grades, and it's recognising that the doctors in training corresponds to everyone who is in a training role, um, whether that's in a formalised system through NHS education, um, or whether actually it's from a training role within the trust. So we have individuals who are uh, trust grade members on our committee, um, and who are locally employed doctors, and so we try and feed that back. So essentially, it's everyone who's not a consultant, and that's how I tend to see yeah. individuals. Yeah, I think that's right because you're, you know, I guess most of the concerns probably affect both groups Absolutely. of doctors, you know, or, or even, you know, even beyond the sort of medical profession to yeah. other healthcare staff yeah. as well. So, absolutely okay. Um, what what sort of act, what sort of stuff are you getting up to as as a committee as a group? Um, do you have any yeah. sort of recent um, successes or things that are coming out on the horizon? Yeah, so when I started in February, I tried to think about um, myself being as chair as what are my big aims for this next year. So my 2023 aim was thinking about how do we promote engagement within the trust? And that has really been quite pivotal in the different roles that we've been involved in. So from a trainee perspective, engagement looks like creating an active social media presence so that people know that they can contact us. So um, we're now back onto Twitter or to X, as it's called. Yeah. And so you can follow us at UHL uh, underscore DITC, okay. Doctors yeah. and Train Committee. We'll stick that in the, in the notes, actually. So Brilliant. Click on that. Um, so we've got that. And then from an engagement point of view, also with um, managers and with education. And so recently we had an event two weeks ago, um, which was called Beyond the Stethoscope Conference. And the aim of it really was to try and promote all the really cool stuff that you can do as a doctor. So it's not just, I work 100% NHS, it's also how do you become a training program director? How do you become a chief executive? How do you go into travel medicine? And so we had a full day where we even had the chief executive, Richard Mitchell, come along. And we had Mark McCarthy as the director of education come along and talk about how they got into their roles. Right. So that's how we're trying to, from an engagement point of view. Yeah. But from a kind of management perspective because we've increased our presence which has been really good we've been asked to join different workforce tasks mm. 
So okay. at the moment we're working with um, the trust, looking at local employed doctors, how do we improve the experience of international med medical graduates coming into UHL? What toolboxes can we do to try and promote that transition? It's quite yes. difficult. Yeah. And then even things more slightly more serious. So talking about um, the recent reports that have come out about sexual safety. Um, yeah. So we've now started, and we're part of the sexual safety working group. So trying to make sure that as trainees, we are in a safe environment, but we can raise concerns and escalate that appropriately. So yeah. these are all yeah. different groups that we've been invited into to try and give the voice um, of trainees and try to advocate what we should be doing better. Yes, yeah, I think that's really useful actually for, you know, any, you know, there may be some of our listeners um, who are thinking, you know, how do I get a, a, a trainee or a, a non-consultant grade perspective mm -hmm. on some piece of work that we're doing. And actually, yeah. I'm assuming, you know, they could approach yourself Absolutely. committee and say, Absolutely. we're working on this piece of work, um, but we don't really have a yeah. trainee voice on that. So Absolutely. And we've got representatives across every CMG. So it's not necessarily myself that has come to a meeting. If you've got um, something that you want to improve within ITAPS, for example, mm. you can speak to ourselves as a committee and I can put you in touch with the ITAPS uh, representative from the Doctors and Training Committee. Yeah. He then knows the trainees within their area that they're working, but also how best to improve it. Yes, no, that, that's really, I think that's a really valuable aspect because I think in the past things have been done without that input. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's lucky if you get the mark because often it's yeah, sort of certain perspectives. Our, our big aim is to try and think about how can we stop working in silos mm -hmm. and be a lot more collaborative. Yeah. So the committee obviously is for doctors in training. By that, I mean, everyone who has said it's not a consultant but also in some ways is for management and education and consultants in those areas to say, how can we improve that? It's almost a symbiotic relationship. It should be two ways. Yeah, right. I guess one of the problems with um, a sort of committee like that is that people rotate on a reasonable yeah. bit. So it's, I guess, making sure that you still have reps yeah. in the areas of, uh, you know, throughout the year as people move away. Yeah, and that's been, um, that's been quite interesting, actually. So as our engagement has gotten up, has increased we found that we're starting to improve this area so to become chair it's um it was an interview process and so there's a few individuals that applied to become um vice chair it used to be put yourself forward as a nomination and you almost got the job straight away yeah. but because our engagement has improved we now had three people apply for the vice chair role which to be vice chair you have to be within the committee yeah. and so we then started our interview process so this was the first year that we had an interview process for that. Okay. And now to be a committee member, what we're now saying is that you should have the almost A-OK -okay from your educational supervisor to say that you represent trainees within the area that you're working. Yes, so that okay. those who are working on the committee truly do represent okay. doctors within the trust. Yes, it's not just a kind of CV, CV boosting. Yeah, sort of absolutely. To say that you've done. Yeah. yeah. Okay. No, that's, that's, no, I hadn't really appreciated that as a, as an aspect of taking on a role yeah. like that. So that's that's really good. Um, okay, well, um, I, I'm conscious it's lunch, so I've got to try and let you get away. <laughs> but um, just um, for, for anyone listening, how how would you get involved with the committee or how would you find out who your rep is if you're you know working in UHL and you've got yeah. an issue you want to raise? Absolutely. So we're doing a piece of work at the moment where we're putting together a PDF spreadsheet which will say who all the CMG reps are um, in your area and that will be circulated through the JDAs. But the other really easy way to do it is to just get um, in touch with us via our uh, UHL email account. Which oh, is, stick that on the notes. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> so if you email us in or you yeah. um, send us a message on Twitter, then we can get back in touch with you. If you want to be part of our committee, then we really, you know, we welcome members because the more diverse we are as a committee, the more we represent the voices within UHL. Um, and so, yeah, get in touch. Great. Okay, lovely. Right, we'll send. It, we'll put all those um, links onto onto the show notes. But um, I will uh, let you escape now. And um, but yeah, but thank you for spending a few no, minutes you're with welcome. us. And, uh, Thanks for inviting me. Thanks so much. Cheers. Bye. Okay, so now um, I've managed to pull out um, the medical director um, Andrew Furlong um, from the um, award ceremony, which, which we just had in the main uh, hall. Um, it's got to be one of the nicer parts of the job, isn't it? Handing out educational rewards. It certainly, it certainly is. Uh, most of my job involves things that are going wrong <laughs> and uh, getting involved with those. Often, if you see the medical director on the news, it's because something's not gone well. Uh, but this is this is fantastic to be able to do these uh, these sorts of things. And you know, there's 
it was was, as we just said we've just done the awards and great to feel the energy in the room great to see the enthusiasm of people and and as i was saying in my introductory remarks i I think we do see education is hugely important for for four reasons really linked to the the recent strategy that we've uh, relaunched and that's around high quality uh, care for all and great place to work partnerships for impact and excellence in research and, and, and innovation and uh, education. And, and I think education has a role in all of those in the sense that we want our workforce to be uh, well-trained, enabled to feel that they have a, a, a chance to contribute to their working life, to feel valued members of the team. Uh, and we increasingly, you know, I've said this in, in many forums in, and including to the coroner that uh, medicine is a team sport and uh, it only really works properly when we're all contributing. And, the, and, and partnerships is exactly the same in the sense that uh, you, we work very closely with NHS England Education, formerly he. Uh, we work very closely with the University of Leicester, De Montfort University and other uh, institutes that are training the, and helping train uh, the next generation of healthcare professionals. And uh, increasingly, we are working across the East Midlands in partnership uh, with other trusts uh, to support one another with fragile services, but also how we train uh, colleagues so that they are uh, able to work seamlessly between our organizations. And we'll, I think we'll see increasingly that more as we start. It, it is very likely that we will have uh, a single EPR across the East Midlands in the not too distant future, so electronic patient record. Yeah. Uh, we're already contributing on things like pathology and radiology, and I think it will help us to, 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 to have a workforce, colleagues who feel that they can work more seamlessly between the organisations, but I also think it will help patient flows and care that we're because we, we all in our day-to-day life as, as clinicians will be involved in transfers of care, be it from the hospital to primary care or to other institutes. And the more that we can make that seamless, the better. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, you, you talk about partnerships there and we've had Simon Gay on from the university talking about just how important UHL is for the undergraduate side of things. Um, uh, and we've, we've heard from Rob Powell and his talk about the role UHL has regionally for the expanding number of um, the doctor workforce that we're going to have coming through. Um, just just how does, how does the kind of higher level management hear about education, what sorts of, um, what news do they get? How do they get it? And how aware are they about um, sort of the, the aspects around training at UHM? So, so I think that the board uh, take education and training incredibly seriously uh, for a number of, for the reasons that I talked about and, and do see it uh, as, as really important to attracting high quality people who want to come and work and stay in Leicester. But in terms of the way that they get the feedback on that, there are some formal mechanisms. So there's, there's a quarterly report that Mark McCarthy, Director of Medical Education, takes through to the, the board. There is a trust board uh, subcommittee called the, the People and Culture Committee, which is uh, meets monthly. And one of the things that they're looking at is is all of the, uh, the, the people uh, metrics that you would look at. And included in that is, you know, how, what are we doing around training? What are we doing about it? to make people feel valued, how are we listening to them? Uh, and again, that's why there's such a push on the staff survey at the moment, because actually we we take that information and, and we use it to try and make UHL a better place to work. And if, if it's a better place to work, then I think people will want to come and uh, will want to come and stay here. And, and part of that is about valuing people and training people. And increasingly what I'm looking to do is, particularly as we, uh, recruit people as either locally employed doctors or on international magic medical graduate programs that we we try and have the same offer for everybody so that everybody we're valuing everybody and making sure that everybody gets an opportunity to get to get the training that they need yeah and i think other certainly other speakers have talked about the um this almost arbitrary distinction sometimes um, and i guess from your point of view it's really about the workforce overall rather than like say local employed doctors or whether they're on an established training scheme ultimately they all need to be trained. They all need to progress whilst also providing the service for the trust um, in the areas they work. So, yeah, um, the finances of um, education, um, it can be difficult to trace some of the funding that comes into the trust for um, education. But 
it feels like we're getting a bit, things are getting a bit tighter, sort of, we know where the money's going. We know we're sort of having a bit more accountability for where the money's going and the roles people are having. Finances is always a, a pressure on the trust. Um, do you see any sort of challenges that might impact education over the next sort of few years? Yeah, so, you, so you're right. I mean, uh, there's a, the, the, the trust gets a lot of money to, to, to provide education, uh, be it that undergraduate or postgraduate and across nursing and, and medical and allied health professionals. And uh, for many years, there wasn't great clarity about where that money was going, what was being provided for it. And, and Mark and the team, uh, along with myself, myself have, have worked with finance colleagues to try and bring more clarity to that. Certainly yeah, with Lorraine Hooper, our, uh, well, I say new financial director, but she's been here for probably two years now. Mm. Uh, Lorraine absolutely gets the importance of uh, of accountability for you know we are given the money for a purpose right. and we need to be able we need to be clear that we're delivering that purpose and the thing that Lorraine has also helped us with is uh, so the money is given for people to, time for people to train but it's also given for provision of, of facilities and and we've been able to use the money slightly differently to start to put some money aside for capital projects in the way that we haven't been able yes. to before and you, and hopefully people will have seen that and some some of the the, uh, the improvements that have taken place in the postgraduate centre at the Leicester Royal Infirmary, and we have plans to try and do that to the other postgraduate centres as well. And you know, education is also very much embedded in the plans for the new hospital, the new hospital plans as well. And so part of the enabling works, which will hopefully start in the next couple of years at the Royal, we'll see some of the educational facilities moving around. And we're very clear, clear that we want to provide good educational facilities because uh, in, in some ways, it's the front door to the organisation mm. because people are coming here to be medical students, they're coming here to be, to, to be uh, doctors in training. Then, you know, if we want them to stay here longer term, they have to feel like there's, yeah. there's good facilities for them. Yes, and we saw some pictures of some of the changes that have already happened, but also, um, you know, the, one of the bigger ones is the Rogers Ward uh, yeah. conversion, which is above our current O'Dames Library. So very exciting times. Um, but that's really interesting. Thank you very much for um, spending a few minutes with us here. Um, I know we're missing out on one of the sessions, so I might let you escape um, and rejoin that session. But um, but yeah, thank you very much for spending some time with us. As they're more than happy to do so. And, and I think these, these sorts of days are, are very important that people have some time for some thinking and to get together and to collaborate. And uh, I'd just like to say thank you to everybody for everything you're doing. Yeah, thank you very much. Okay, next up, I have managed to grab the Deputy Postgraduate Secondary Care Dean. Is that correct? It so is. That's right. <laughs> so it's Rob Powell, um, who is one of the intensivists at UHL, who also has um, a fairly senior role at the, at the deanery. And uh, um, in your talk, you made a particular point about calling it the deanery because there seems to have been a lot of name changes over the last uh, year or so. So um, what are we meant to be calling you? NHS England. So the official title is NHS England Workforce Transformation and Education Directorate. Good, right. So it's basically a lot of the same roles that HEE Health Education England had. So it's sort of just transferred over into this new title. Okay. Um, so, so the rationale for that was that the workforce function had never worked very well, and NHS England wanted to bring HEE back into the workforce fold so that the teams looking at workforce development in the NHS coordinated better. Plus, of course, all the saving opportunities of having backroom functions. Yes, of course, they're, they're usually um, front, 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 almost. Um, I know last year you had a talk um, at this very event um, talking about some of the changes that were on the horizon. Um, have those sort of things come to fruition? Have, have those opportunities, are they starting to crystallize a little bit more? You were talking about I, know, I certainly remember talking about the the difference between trade doctors in training and the locally employed doctors and funding streams for that sort of thing. Does that look like... So one of the things that's happened is that the curricula have been adjusted and the equivalence criteria have been lo loosened is perhaps not the right word, but made more flexible so that people will find it easier to go through and get equivalence via what we call Caesar pathway. And that is going to influence the way people choose to train. We are already seeing people who previously would have taken a traditional training route and applied for a specialty training number, choosing not to do that and choosing to build their own training schemes. And the, the most obvious example of that is in, in my own specialty anesthesia, where some trusts have become frustrated 
because of the bottleneck in recruitment and actually started their own training schemes. So people are being offered a complete training scheme by a large hospital trust, but it lies outside of the traditional training scheme and they would not achieve a CCT via conventional route, they would achieve a CCT via equivalence. Well, wow. okay, yes, and I remember you mentioning this down in London that, that that's happening, isn't it? Um, one of the big parts of your talk was the expansion in numbers. So there's been a lot of talk in all grades of medicine, include starting at medical school and that expansion of numbers. Do you, do you have a sort of sense of the sort of magnitude we're talking about when, when we talk about it? Yeah, so, so we, know that, we know that in terms of predicting expansion of medical schools that we're looking at a doubling by 2030. And we know that we've had expansions at foundation level to match the previous expansion of medical schools, which people will probably remember that when Jeremy Hunt was health secretary, we increased medical school at work entrance by 1,500. And those doctors have just come out. And hence the expansions that we've made locally recently. However, those will pale into insignificance, talking about future posts. The workforce plan is delightfully vague about matching specialty training numbers to medical school output. So I cannot say that there is a hard and fast plan of how many specialty training posts we will have. But what I can say is that since COVID, and since 2022, we were given nationally a thousand extra specialty training posts. So we have put a thousand extra specialty training posts into the mix. And that will, that program has ended this year. And we are now waiting to see what the next set of expansion data looks like. And then we also have a redistribution project, which of course is slightly different, but that's looking at redistributing fairly the medical workforce at training level across the country. And of course, we're net gainers from that because we traditionally were under-doctored. Yes, you were talking about the spread and you know, making sure that there is equitable healthcare provision in terms of the quality of the doctors going to various places around the country and typically you know, the less popular areas tend to get people lower down on the pecking order when it comes to ranking. But that sounds like it's going to go out of the window and it's going to be a bit, a bit less organized. Well, so this is probably, the, absolutely. So this is probably the single most controversial thing we've done for a long time. And it is to abandon educational achievement scores at university. So medical students who previously worked very hard, obviously, uh, were then in deciles and those deciles inform their success at allocation. So we've abandoned deciles and we've also abandoned the educational performance scores. And that means that you will be allocated to a region, hopefully a region that you've expressed a preference for, but you will be allocated randomly within that region. And you may not get that region if you apply to a region which is very popular. Yes. There is a national requirement that we provide equality of care across all geographies. And so we've got big initiatives to try and support the rural and remote communities. And of course, Lincolnshire for us, and for particular in you know, part of my job is supporting Lincolnshire and making sure that whenever we talk about expansion, that we have not excluded Lincolnshire. And Lincolnshire has a medical school. We're trying to grow a health economy that is independent. We don't want people commuting from Nottingham to Lincoln. We want people who live in Lincoln. We want people who work there live in a flat there, our junior doctors there, our senior doctors there, and they're not itinerant medical workers. Yeah, yeah, okay. And, and the other thing that other people have talked about today as well is, as well as the expanding number of doctors, there's also an expansion in these allied roles as well. And of course, trying to fit all of that into the mix is, is another level of complexity that needs to be sort of thought about, but um, sounds like it's in the very early stages at the moment, don't quite know numbers involved there so th so there are targets in the long-term workforce plan and for example we know the physician associates we're hoping to have you know train uh, 1400 physician associates as a consequence of the plan and i don't think there's anything to worry about and i don't think doctors need to, to worry that they're somehow going to come and steal doctors jobs it's still a relatively small number of people compared to medical training the problem with the plan is that we've got some targets for nurses increasing their places by 92%, for example, but as yet, we don't know how it's going to be funded and we don't know how to do it yet. And so that's the big question. And of course, we also have a potential change in government coming up. We don't know what, who the next government will be and whether they will endorse the current plans in the, in, as they're laid out. Yeah.
It was interesting speaking to you because um, a lot of the talk that we talk when we discuss education in UHL, it's at a very local level. And actually, one of the things that's coming across is just the, you know, just how close or more aligned with the, pol the politics of the day that a lot of the stuff that you were involved with um, in terms of, you know, long-term workforce strategies, things like that. So that's really interesting. I'm sure a lot of our listeners will be interested to hear um, some of that. Um, bringing it back down to a local level, then what what is it that the deanery are looking for or need from UHL and the clinical educators that we have at UHL and maybe the sort of support that might be available to, to the staff? So the big tests coming and the big challenge is providing enough supervisory capacity to all these different learners. And so what we need to do is to make use of our workforce. And an example of that would be to make use of what we used to call SAS grades and associate specialists and things. And we've now got new people being appointed as specialists and make use of those senior people um, to supervise foundation doctors, supervise PAs, supervise ACPs in their development, we can't always use non-consults to supervise specialty training grades because some of the colleges have requirements as who can be a supervisor. But the challenge for a large trust like this is that if you look at the number of learners on the ground and the placement activity, the supervisory capacity is a, is a, is, is a sort of a jewel that you need to protect. Yeah, yeah. And there's certainly you know, ideas about making that part of a core contract for new consultants coming out and just... You know, emphasizing that in, in new consultant roles, uh, that's an expectation, particularly in a big place like you like UHL. So, good. Thank you very much. Was there anything else you wanted to add? Well, I, I was, the only thing I was going to say is there is an opportunity coming down the pipeline here because if you think about the money that will come with increased capacity, both postgraduate trainees with their education allowance, but also undergraduate medical students who are well, the placements are quite well remunerated, is that you've got an opportunity there to create posts. And you've got an opportunity to create consultant posts with consultants who have significant amounts of time dedicated to education, new posts on the back of these expansions. So a forward-thinking trust is going to look at this and say, we could have four more consultants in respiratory medicine. We could have eight more consultants in anesthesia. We could have four more consultants in surgery. And they could all have four PAs in education. Right. Okay. And so there are opportunities that will come because otherwise we are going to struggle when someone comes to us and says that we need hundred extra medical students next year. Yeah, yeah. Gosh, the numbers are quite staggering, aren't they? <laughs> Great. Well, um, thank you very much, uh, Rob, for joining it's us. Pleasure. Um, it is coffee break, so I'm going to let you escape and, and grab a coffee, but um, I'm sure that's going to be a really interest to our listeners. Thank you. Thanks. Right. Hello. It's the, uh, the end of the Educator Showcase Day, um, and I've managed to grab Professor Winston Rennie, who is the Lead Foundation Programme at TPD, um, and you gave a talk earlier on today. Um, so when it comes to foundation training, we have a huge number of foundation doctors within the trust. Um, what, what are the kind of main changes that you were talking about today and some of the challenges that you see over the next year or two with the foundation program? Because it, it does, a, a lot of talk today has been about expanding numbers. So I don't know if that's the kind of main issue. So, so the main issue with foundation doctors are that they uh, rotate through through different specialties in the trust for two years. So it's a, they're a transient group of people, yet they are the core of where we recruit from our future SD doctors and, and CT doctors and consultants from. So whilst there is a sense sometimes of not a lot of belonging, uh, they do matter and they are the, they are the basis of, of, of all our training within hospital medicine. The issues that were that are arising nowadays are because of the increase in number of um, of foundation doctors because of the ex expansion as a backlog based on the expansion in medical schools, and because of this increase in uh, and expanding numbers, there are constraints on finances. Specialties are find it are finding it uh, difficult in order to you know recruit education supervisors and sufficient training posts because the numbers of consultants have remained exactly the same yeah. whereas you've got an expanding base so the talk this morning was all about the inverted pyramid yes we'd squeeze time for the educators yeah because of the expanding numbers of trainees which is only going to get worse as time goes yeah. on yeah so we, and that's that's because the expansion in medical school places that happened 5 years ago is only now just those that cohort yes. is now coming out of medical school and Suddenly, that's now part of the foundation. Yeah. So numbers. it really was J uh, Jeremy Hunt's 
plan that's right. for expansion. Yeah. That has led to this. And then there are plans now recently to expand the numbers even more in medical schools, which will yeah. Yeah. reflect. So it, it isn't just an issue for foundation doctors. It's an issue for ST posts, specialty posts, et cetera, because the number of consultants are actually remaining the same, if not dwindling. Yeah, yeah. And I guess into that mix of numbers, um, some of the people today have been talking about the, you know, we have a large international medical graduate workforce as well so you know within uhl within lots of nhs hospitals so somehow they have to sort of feed into the equation as well yes. so, so that causes another uh, constraint and resources for the foundation doctors so you have to remember that every foundation doctor comes with um, half the sal nhs salary and uh, a educational package which is supposed to provide for training for supervisors etc uh, the issue with locally employed doctors and international medical graduates uh, it's, it's all well and good if international medical graduates come in via the foundation program. Then they are part of this package and they're given the, the funding follows the doctor. Uh, the, the others, it's where things get uh, a little grey is when people say a foundation equivalent doctor or they call them an F3 or an F4. You have to remember that if an F3 here is a misnomer. It could be, you could be F7 and still be called an F3 doctor. But there is no funding that follows you. HE do not look after you. Right. And effectively, you're a locally employed trust doctor. Yes. Locally employed trust doctors have to be funded 100% by the trust. There is no money that follows you for your training. The other issue that we have is releasing our foundation doctors for their protected teaching time. And the only way we manage to do that is because you have locally employed doctors on the wards, allowing them to go. So what we've done for ourselves is to create a two-tier system yeah. with competition where there should really be no competition. Everybody should get equal training yeah but unfortunately that's the world we live in and that's the way it is oh, you're right and um we had uh, rob powell earlier talking about some of the challenges that that that, that presents really and we like you say this two-tier system actually everyone in a below consultant grade in the hospital is still everyone's looking to train and progress and um, whether you're in a training post or not so so of course yes. to sort of have parity and in, in the opportunities that you give so um so potentially there's some there's some um opportunities to improve that with the, some of the changing structures around um, the deanery. Um, if, uh, given, given what you said about the numbers that are, um, foundation doctors we're expecting to see over the coming years, um, is, there a, is there a sort of uh, a message for the clinical educators we have in UHL? Um, obviously, we're involved with supervising a lot of them, but is, is there any sort of key things you want to get across to? So the key, message, the key message I'd like to get across is, please start calling them SHOs. Uh, okay. So there are still, the jokes apart, there are still some departments in the hospital that call them SHOs. An SHO, uh, if you take year one of an SHO's job in the old days, mm -hmm. the old SHO versus an F1 and an F2 doctor, if you add their time as an F1 and F2 doctor together, you wouldn't even get the amount of time a year one SHO spent on a ward. Right. So there is a complete difference. So effectively, if you think of F1 and F2 as an extended form of the old house officer job, Okay. That's effectively what it is. So please don't call an F2 an SHO. That's what I'd say. But the other thing that we're trying to do is to, um, so UHL are very good because we are trying to, we've got the largest numbers of associate specialists who are educational supervisors, the largest number of um, long-term trust grade doctors who are educational supervisors. So we're trying to recruit as many experienced people as possible, train them and use them as educational supervisors for foundation year. So that's one good thing in our trust. So really, if you've got time in your job plan, you're yes. thinking about taking on that supervision responsibility, then please do, is what it, you're saying. Yes, and especially as uh, it's extremely rewarding, especially as a new consultant, uh, foundation doctors are uh, foundation doctors are easier to supervise because you have the experience having trained recently. Uh, they're not as hard to appraise as a senior colleague of yours. Yeah. And it's a great uh, time filler for your SPA. We were actually doing some good. You see, you see a lot of a lot of rewards are, are, are you know are apparent when you see them become consultant colleagues of yours or you know in other specialties. Yeah, absolutely. That's certainly how I started off with in my journey as an educational supervisor is, you know, starts off with, with the foundation program. And actually there were some changes during that period, which, which I think some, it actually made some of it easier. Um, and some of the requirements have been stripped out and, um, the feedback mechanisms are, um, a little bit better than, 
than when I was in FY. So, uh, so I think it is. It, 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 I, I would agree with you that it is very rewarding. That's really good because yeah. most of the time, you know, when you uh, changes happen in the NHS, it's usually detriment rather than better. Yeah. So it's, it's quite hard yeah. to hear that. Partic- from you. Particularly, I think if if there is an element of struggle there, because you know they are in first year doctors straight. You know, that's that first professional role with the title, and people do struggle. And, and I, you know, if you can help someone through that, it is incredibly rewarding. Yes. yes. Um, so yeah, I'm gonna, I'm keen to let you go back and enjoy your uh, enjoy yourself down in the bar. Um, just uh, over the course of today, was there any any particular sessions that you um, found interesting or thought actually I'm going to take that away? And yeah, so I found the IT uh, talk uh, by Max and Reese extremely uh, useful, especially the practical aspects of it. When we had to you know, log in on our phones, etc. Yes. Um, whilst I may not use um, the latest newfangled thing, and I might still use. PowerPoint as my cult hanger yeah. in my talks. Um, it's always good to see another new bit of software, new bit of kit. Yes, I think that's a really va- that was one of the I think really valuable parts of today is that you know we've got people that can help with the tech within the department, um, help you get up on your feet, up and running, um, and and just seeing what's out there because you know often we just we only use what what we've been shown or what we see other people. That's the key use. thing: support time mm-hmm. for education. Support your admin and your clerical staff, yeah, and space. Have an office and a quiet area to train. Those are the three key things that I think we as educators need. Yeah, we really need to support and and nurture staff like uh, you know the IT people, etc. Yeah, absolutely. Well, there you go. There's a message for our chief exec. <laughs> well, thank you very much, uh, Winston, for joining us. Um, I'll let you get back to your beer, and uh, yeah, we'll catch up soon. Pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Faculty Focus podcast. If you like the episode, please share with friends and colleagues. You can also like and subscribe to the show and perhaps even leave a review. Clinical education can be tough, but we're stronger as a community. So if you have an idea for an episode or would like to come on and talk to us, do get in touch via email or Twitter. Details in the show notes. The Faculty Focus Podcast. Community Development Showcase.